Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. Christian, how are you today, my friend? It's another streaming recommendations episode. We got a bunch of movies to talk about, and I'm excited. Well, once again, Scott, my choices have been better than yours. Once You're really again, needing to step up your the last. I can't remember the last time your recommendations were better. Uh, I mean, every streaming recommendations episode. Obviously. I, I the Keanu and Shakespeare recommendations. You got me. Yours were significantly superior. Well, Thank not significantly. You. Yours were superior. Look, instead of that, all I have, have to say, you have worse top ten lists than me. You have worse what? top five lists than me. What? That is that is extraordinarily subjective. Get that out of here. Streaming we're, recommendations. We're reviewing movies. What do you think this is? Streaming streaming recommendations. We can compare choices because often you pick movies that I like more than the movies I pick. But top ten and top five. Come on, let let's leave that be. Let that that's neither here nor there. Okay, sure. Well, everyone, today we're going to be looking at two Edward Norton movies to reflect on last month and two non-musical music films to look forward to next month and these were two good categories we had a lot of options for both obviously music being a an extremely common theme and genre for movies so tons of choices there and edward norton has a fair amount of movies streaming right now which is pretty cool considering the one that we watched the illusionist for last month's marathon or blend of the month was not very good so i was excited to check out some more edward norton movies which is where we will be starting today's episode so christian i get to kick us off correct you you do you do indeed well folks imagine you are one of hollywood's brightest young actors actors your debut film nets you an academy award nomination You make a bunch of big movies with important directors and movie stars, and after you debut in 1996, you're coming into the new millennium with two Oscar nominations under your belt. It's time. It's time to make your directorial debut, because you have artistic aspirations. And so naturally, that is what Edward Norton did, and he did it the strangest way imaginable, (laughs) with 2000's Keeping the Faith. So it is directed and stars Edward Norton, co-starring Ben Stiller and Jenna Elfman with a script from Stuart Blumberg. It stars Norton as a Catholic priest and Stiller as a Jewish rabbi who have a woman from their past, I guess they were children, they were friends, and a woman from their past comes back to New York City and, of course, sparks fly, love triangle forms, everybody gets emotional. Keeping the Faith was a movie that I had not really heard of before looking into more Edward Norton movies. It's one that hasn't lived on very well in terms of, I mean, any of these performers' careers, be it Stiller or Elfman or or Norton. But honestly, Christian, I came away liking this movie. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to your thoughts because I got the sense that you were a little frustrated. I made you I watch this one. I did not come away liking this movie. <laughs> Christian did not come away liking this movie. So, Keeping the Faith is definitely a strange directorial debut for Norton. So, Christian, you didn't like it. Tell me why. Tell me why you didn't like it. Cool. So, you have a Catholic priest who's best friends with a rabbi, right? 
Right. So you should get the sense that faith is somewhat important to them, considering the word faith is in the title. Right. It's not, or at least we don't see any faith at all from anyone in this movie whatsoever. And look, look, I, there's one line that really, really bugged me. It's when Jenna Elfman tells, okay, let's just say that she tells one of them that their faith is what's most, one of the things she loves most about him. And I'm like, what faith? What? You haven't seen anything. What spirituality is there in this movie? There's none. I I totally agree with that criticism, even though I'm not as, as sweeping as you. I think they do, I and I blame this not so much on Norton as I do on Stuart Blumberg, who the screenwriter is hundred percent his fault. <laughs> original screenplay. The directing is not terrible. No, not at all. Definitely not a flashy movie or you know some bravura performance behind the camera. But for somebody who had been in Hollywood for all of five years at that point, still impressive. Impressive that he already was able to to make a movie this competent. But I do wish they had incorporated more elements of these two faith leaders' actual spirituality into this movie. And honestly, there is a lot wrong with this movie, and a lot of it has to do with the screenplay. They make a choice early on to sort of make Stiller's rabbi character the main character, with Elfman as the romantic lead opposite him, and Norton's priest falls behind as more of a supporting character for most of the movie. But this is despite the fact that he kicks off a flashback at the beginning. And then that flashback recurs about an hour of the way into the movie and then doesn't come back. That was such an issue that I had because (laughs) I assumed that the movie would be equally carried by them. And it's not. This is Ben Stiller's movie. It is. It is, which I wasn't expecting considering it has all three of them on the poster and Norton directed it. But I will say, to Norton's credit, I think it's at least mature of a person to cast yourself in your movie but not make yourself the star and allow somebody else to have the spotlight. Maybe they could have pitched it better because I think it's a great concept, a great pitch. A priest and a rabbi fall in love with the same woman. It's like the start to a joke. But it's not executed incredibly well. But I still give him credit for not taking over the spotlight as he was making his directorial debut. And as I said, I like this movie, and I think there's a lot to like. And after finishing watching it, my wife watched the last hour with me. I looked over at her and I said, that movie was done probably the worst way possible, and I absolutely loved it. (laughs) Just because there are a lot of good jokes, and it's people that you like, Norton and Stiller, and also Jenna Elfman, who is special to me because of Looney Tunes back in action. And she did not have an easy career in Hollywood. A lot of the things in the projects that she was attached to did not do well after she became famous for a TV show called Dharma and Greg. And so I'm proud that Jenna Elfman at least had a solid movie here because she's great in this movie and she does not get enough to do. And I wish that she had more. So definitely a weak screenplay, a great concept, but a weak screenplay. And despite that, I think the performers do a lot with it. And Norton has the a solid directorial awesome. debut. Do you, I think the I think the best joke is in the beginning, though. The whole spectacles, testicles, what is it? Wallet, watch. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Where I'm like amazing. Teenaged, teenaged versions of 
Stiller and Norton's characters are teaching each other about their religious traditions, and Norton's trying to teach Stiller how to do the cross symbol for uh, a Catholic. I, I do agree. I wish there was more about their actual faith and spirituality in this movie, because what was there, I think, was handled pretty well for a Hollywood movie, which a lot of Hollywood movies maybe feature somebody saying grace at dinner or they dance around people's faith and everybody's kind of a religious or they're maybe spiritual, but they don't even get into the nuts and bolts around that. And so I love that we got to see a movie where big Hollywood players were a rabbi and a priest and nobody was really a bad person. They were just trying to figure out how to be the best rabbi and best priest that they could be. And there's some honest moments of them in front of their congregations too. But I, I wish there was more. I wish that they had delved deeper into that. The screenplay had left some of the excess bits on the side and been a little more streamlined. But that's that's neither here nor there. We could have made a better version of this movie, I'm sure. But regardless, I was a fan of keeping the faith, even if Christian wasn't. So Christian, I want to ask, was there anything else at all that you liked about this movie? Anything else to mention before we move on? Uh, I the, the, the guy whom they see having sex with his secretary... <laughs> Uh, he was funny. Casanova. <laughs> Casanova was funny. Well, a little fun fact for you. That guy is was played by Jenna Elfman's real-life husband, Bodie Elfman. He got to make a cameo appearance in the movie. That I, I want a wife that cool. <laughs> All right, folks. If we have piqued your curiosity, whether you're just looking for a kind of casual, easy-to-watch rom-com, or you want to check out something curious from Norton's career, Keeping the Faith is available to stream on HBO Max. Christian? What was your Edward Norton selection? So my Edward Norton selection was 25th Hour. And it was based on the book, The 25th Hour by David Benioff, who is one of the co-creators of Game of Thrones. And he also wrote the screenplay that Spike Lee read and wanted to direct. So it's written by Benioff, directed by Spike Lee. And it's, it's the last day like 25 hours before a man convicted of uh drug selling i'm i don't know exact drug it's not drug possession but it's like organized drug selling drug trafficking drug trafficking thank you drug trafficking gets um yeah gets convicted is going to go away for seven years and it's him reflecting on what that last day can look like talking with his friends talking with his dad talking with his girlfriend looking back at when and why he was convicted what happened how scared he is the lives of his of the people around him of his friends so uh also it's the first movie that we have seen together in yay well i guess mad we saw mad max together but that was with very like that that was with precautions in place (laughs) drive through masks on yes the first movie that i got to see at your apartment we could just sit and be so it, i thought it was a good time anyway i'm i'm not gonna lie scott this this movie i think raised so many important existential crises i came away from it positive before i go further into that what did you think of this movie 25th hour is a movie i had seen for a college class And I remember liking it, not fully getting it. And it was also for a class over winter break. So I didn't even get to sit in and and benefit from hearing smarter classmates talk about it. But I learned that in the years since that class that it's considered 
often considered one of Spike Lee's best movies, especially from 2000 on. Can, it's on Roger Ebert's great movies list. So it's one that I've been wanting to check out again and see what I missed the first time around. And watching it again, I was moved by the story and also maybe blown away is too strong for some of the filmmaking that's that spike offers us but really really impressed by the movie itself not just the the story being told but i think spike does an incredible job and i see why it's considered one of his best movies in his career i haven't seen enough to say that i'm still working through his his movies but i was a huge fan for my rewatch of 25th hour I think it has one flaw to it in that it's too long. I do think that you I, we could have trimmed 10 minutes from before the club scene and maybe 10 minutes of the club scene, two hours and 15 minutes. I, I don't know if the film itself supported that, but every single scene is spectacularly done. This is the, This is one of my favorite Edward Norton performances I've ever seen. Just a man who, this tough guy exterior just gets not even peeled away, gets ripped apart. And he's there. There's just there's just one impactful scene of him crying because he doesn't want to get raped in jail. And I don't know how, it, it, it struck me. This vulnerability, this beautiful view of, of, of a man who doesn't know what to do. And looking at it, this I, I loved this being able to showcase Edward Norton's skills. Now, I think that there's so much more going for this film. I truly think Philip Seymour Hoffman is fantastic. Rosario Dawson, fantastic. Barry Pepper, amazing. So, even Anna Paquin. This was such a strange Anna Paquin performance as a young student who's being flirtatious with her teacher. But... I think it's working. I, I, I think a lot of this film just makes you kind of look back at what your natural desires are and how to, well, kind of how to deal with that, how to deal with the fact that you have desires you don't know how to vocalize. I think it's interesting that you bring that up because this is such a deep movie and that's something that I hadn't even considered in my, in my time thinking about the movie after we watched it. And there's just so much there, both thinking, or not both. There's so much there thinking about the desire of all these different characters and the main trio of men in this movie, especially trying to get a read on them, understand their relationships with each other. Desire, of course, is there for Hoffman as he deals with this, these feelings he has for a student, which is obviously inappropriate, but I think for the most part handled with some tact, there's probably one element to that that wouldn't get put into the movie nowadays, but regardless. You also see Norton's desires to take care of the people in his life while also trying to take care of himself. And Barry Pepper's character trying to be the tough Wall Street guy and then watching him slowly crack over the course of the movie. And that's just the, the desire and the characters that we're talking about here because there's, again, so much to unpack especially considering this movie came out right after 9-11 and it's not in the original novel <laughs> obviously because Benioff couldn't tell the future and so they're working on this adaptation and they're like well how do we tell this quintessentially New York story without fitting in 9-11 and they reworked it to make sure that we knew 
that so much of this movie had changed because of 9-11 from the opening title sequence which features some shots from around the city with the lights going up where the twin towers were to a scene at pepper's character's apartment where he and hoffman are talking and the camera doesn't move just looks out a window at ground zero in the background the atmosphere of new york city is also baked into this movie and it's an incredible time capsule when you think about the 9-11 of it all i guess to say and again that's yet another theme if you will put into this movie and and it is stuffed like you said it, it maybe could have been cut down a little bit I, I personally don't know if i would have cut anything down but it is quite long but i was so impressed i was i was a huge fan um agree with you too since this is our norton category that this is just a great performance from him and keeping the faith is so different because <laughs> it's mostly a comedy and you get to see him being goofy which is not uh how norton always operates but 25th hour i think takes some of his persona as this hard almost <laughs> not evil i guess but he often plays these hard to love criminal characters thinking about his two oscar nominations being in primal fear where he's accused of murder and american history x where he plays a nazi <laughs> you have this persona being played up and unpacked at the same time it's such a good performance from norton and i'm really glad that you had us rewatch it 25th hour available to stream on hoopla through your local library go hoopla go hoopla <laughs> Now Can I say one move... more thing about 25th Hour Christian, or will that annoy you? You you may. Terrence Blanchard did the movie, the music Such for this movie. Such a good score. Such a good score. <laughs> Such a good score. He recently got nominated as the only person nominated for Defy Bloods, and he didn't receive a nomination at all for this movie. He's been nominated a couple other times in his career, but he's a frequent collaborator of Spikes, and his score in this movie is incredible. So if you're going to watch it, I would definitely encourage you to stay focused, listen to the music in the background, it's beautiful and it elevates the movie so much available to stream on hoopla uh now we're gonna go enter our music non-musical category <laughs> so scott why don't you start us off on how you went with with this yes as a refresher christian you gave us this topic to look at a movie for specifically a movie that is not a musical which we defined as often theatrical or adapted from a broadway musical a movie where people break out into song and dance. So music movies, by contrast, typically feature people in bands or groups or singers, where it's not necessarily a musical where people are constantly breaking into song and dance. It's just a music movie. And so thinking about that prompt, I often have a tendency behind the scenes to go in-depth, try to fit in a couple movies before recommending one to Christian, and then he gets mad and says, just tell me what you want to watch because it's Friday and we have to record on Monday. <laughs> so I just decided to keep it simple, keep it easy for this one, and I picked an old favorite, and that movie is Pitch Perfect. Pitch Perfect, if you have not seen it, is a 2012 comedy film directed by Jason Moore and written by Kate Cannon, and it stars Anna Kendrick, among others, as acapella singers <laughs> at the fictional Barden University uh, with an all-female group and an all-male group competing to be the champions at the ICCAs, the Intercollegiate Championships. Uh, Pitch Perfect is a movie 
that I've seen a few times in my life. It became a family favorite when it came out. I was in high school at the time, and <laughs> it was one of those movies where I know I wouldn't have been allowed to watch it if I was as young as my youngest sibling was when it had first come out, but she was the youngest sibling, and so she could watch it anyway because my parents didn't stop caring. <laughs> and became a family favorite. It's, it's funny. It's a good time. And I think it's aged mostly well. It went on to have two sequels. It was a box office hit. So, Christian, I was very happy to include a Pitch Perfect movie as my recommendation. Uh, but what are your thoughts, Christian? Are you Akka obsessed or are you are you not in for Pitch Perfect? This movie? Pretty good. Honestly, <laughs> pretty, pretty good. I forgot how enjoyable it is and how well-paced it is. This movie moves fast, but at no point does it feel rushed. So, I... I remember, I, I don't know, I, I watched this junior, senior year of high school, something. Every it, it was like a sensation when it first came out. Everyone was talking about it. And, and I saw it afterward. I don't know how I saw it. I think it was on TV or something. Maybe I watched it on a bus somewhere. And I enjoyed it then. I enjoy it now. A bunch of the people in this movie do not have lasting careers. No. <laughs> I think, was it Rebel Wilson and Ben Platt and I guess Adam Devine are the three most successful long living. I'm really surprised we don't see more Anna Kendrick in films and I'm very surprised we don't see Skylar Astin anywhere. Yeah, Skylar Astin, he had a TV show that he was leading, but he has not been as successful after the Pitch Perfect movies. Anna Kendrick is still around. She recently fronted a Max original, <laughs> Love yes. Life, which I did not watch, but I was always a fan of hers, and so might need to check it out sometime here, sometime soon here after catching up with Pitch Perfect. But she'll be around. She's got an Oscar nomination. She's still going places. But yeah, a lot of people in this movie who didn't really get to go on to do bigger things, or they were sort of winding down. Brittany Snow had been around. She was a, a younger 20-something teen star, and Pitch Perfect was kind of her last most famous thing. And, you know, she's I like her a lot in this movie and uh, in the series and wouldn't mind if she was able to come back and do something new. Uh, Anna Camp, another one of the Barton Bellas who did not get to go on to too many movies or TV appearances after this, but still working steadily. So they're people who you might recognize. They've probably popped up on shows you've watched or in other movies you've seen. Yo, Elizabeth Banks in this movie is, and, and John Michael Higgins, amazing. <laughs> Those commentators are spectacular. That That's one of the main reasons I think people should watch this movie. They are really funny. <laughs> oh my goodness. Although, I'm going to bring up something that helped me back just a little bit from this movie. Okay. And I, I don't know how you're going to feel about it. Tell me. Hit me. I don't think the singing is the best. <laughs> Christian, you don't love acapella? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I love acapella because I was in college. But this, I, I, I don't know. I, me, me, oh, man. When I went to acapella shows in college, I felt more than I got from the acapella shows here. Maybe that's just a really bad, I shouldn't be comparing a real life performance to, to this movie, but... I feel like there are better singers in college than the people who made up these groups. The music, the musical aspect is a little challenging because obviously it's not happening live. And some of it, I th 
think they're adding voices in uh, more, you know, more voices than there are people on stage in the groups. And some of it, people intentionally aren't the best singers like Rebel Wilson, certainly a good singer. And it, it makes sense that she, her character would be in an acapella group, but she's not bringing down the house or anything. And I, I kind of agree with you there, I, though I do think the Hollywoodized, zhuzhed up acapella is pretty fun. And this movie came out at an interesting time. Glee was probably still happening at this point. I can't remember. <laughs> but acapella, uh, the pentatonics were becoming famous. Acapella was really having a moment. And Pitch Perfect capitalized on that. I didn't know this, but it was adapted from a book. That was, it was. That tracked some college groups, one of whom actually ap- appeared in the movie. So... This acapella moment. Uh, You know, I I guess I understand if you weren't a huge fan of the music in it. I I do have to say, the ending number from the Bard and Bellas gets me every time. Not like crying in the club, but (laughs) I just think it's... You're not crying in the club? No, no, I'm not. But it is really well done, and I think a pitfall of movies like this where people are in competitions, especially talent-wise... Is that you have to really sell the the heroes winning, <laughs> and I think they do that by showing their kind of boring performances earlier on in the movie, and then getting into a, a pretty uh, just fun and remixed up finale that is is really well done. Any other thoughts on Pitch Perfect, Christian? No. Uh, remind me, have you seen Pitch Perfect two or three? I have seen Pitch Perfect two. I have not seen Pitch Perfect three. Gotcha. Well, for those of you listening along who are big acapella fans or Pitch Perfect heads, <laughs> Pitch Perfect 2 is my favorite from the trilogy that is Pitch Perfect. And Scott, no. <laughs> it's, Christian, it's so Scott, funny. no. It's so funny. You're, you, you can't resist. It's so funny. <laughs> I did resist it. I, I don't know, grabbed a stick and beat it away. Oh my gosh. There are elements that obviously don't work. They, these movies do play fast and loose with uh, edgy humor, like John Michael Higgins' acapella commentator being misogynistic, and not the best treatment of the non-white characters, I do have to say, and that comes up in Pitch Perfect 2. Uh, Pitch Perfect 3, though, gloriously stupid, like fully in on the joke, knowing how dumb it is. It, it, it's, a, it's a winner in its own sort of way. So, folks, if we've encouraged you, maybe check out not just Pitch Perfect 1, which is streaming on HBO Max, so dual HBO picks for me, um, but also check out Pitch Perfect 2 and 3 if you can find them. Okay. Okay. Let's get on to the very last, very last category or pick. Christian, you had a decidedly different music film to recommend than me, so why don't you go ahead and tell us about it? It's 2007's Irish music film, The Once, uh, written and directed by John Carney, although the true stars of it are Glenn Hansard and Marqueta Irgroa, who also made the music alongside Interference, which is an Irish band. Um, This is a movie that no one thought would be big whatsoever i mean the budget for it is tiny the budget for this film is i think a hundred grand i think 150 but still 150 grand yes and premiered and sundance and the only reason it premiered at sundance was because a sundance programmer was able to catch a rough cut of this film uh, that the writer director had made and was like, you should submit this. He submitted it, 
it became a sensation at Sundance and ended up winning the Academy Award for Best Original Song. It's about a struggling Irish singer who finds a girl who they, they be friends. They become friends. She's a very good singer. And so he asks her to kind of record some music with him. In all honesty, that's most of what this movie's about. It's them looking at their friendship, at times a love story, at times very much not a love story, and trying to express feelings that they can't express through words, only through music, which is one of the most cliche things in the world I get, but is pulled off in this film, I believe. I believe so as well, my friend. Definitely glad to finally see Once. It's a movie that had been on my radar for a long time because I'd seen one of John Carney's other movies and loved it. And I saw the musical Once because it was adapted into a Broadway show. And I got to see a touring production in the great city of Cleveland when I was in high school. And I really, really loved that show and was looking forward to seeing the movie. And I just never made time for it until you made me. So thank you for doing that, my friend. I don't know how to lead this discussion except for what what would you say was one of your favorite scenes in this movie? It's a very simple plot. It is a very simple plot. And I would have to say my favorite scene actually comes near the end of the movie. They decide to record this demo for Hansard's character who they're they don't have names in the movie. They're just referred to as guy and girl. So I'll I'll call them that. that. Yeah. So Guy gets this chance to record his demo. Girl's going to help, and they recruit some other street buskers to come play with them in the studio. And the guy who's the engineer for them is Eamon. And Eamon is obviously not thrilled to be there. It's just his job. He's looking forward to helping these people record their songs and then going home. And there's this moment as they start playing the first song where Carney cuts back over to Eamon away from them in the studio and he's just kicked up. He's not really paying a lot of attention, but he's listening along, not kind of nodding along. And then you see he leans in and just messes with one of the, the levels on his, on his soundboard. And slowly Eamon gets won over by the music because it's so good. And I think that's a, just a small metaphor for this story because it's solo production value, no movie stars, not any known actors even, shot on digital cameras, and yet the music is so good that it basically won the whole world over. <laughs> As you said, this movie went from almost not even getting into Sundance to winning an Oscar. So that scene for me, I just put a big smile on my face. What about you? Does one stand out for you? The... The moment where girl finds the piano it as they're recording and she just like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. And then she starts playing the song, The Hill. That struck me. That really got me because it's, I mean, this is the definition of an indie film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is the definition of an indie film. But it's it, it's one where... Oh, what's the best way to say this? It's raw. Now, I love things that are mechanical. I I, I need to preface this. I love Moulin Rouge to an extent. I love Pitch Perfect. 
but the music there feels, you know, like a production. It does not seem like production at all at once. It seems 100% from the heart. So I like that. I like that a lot. Once is a really cool movie to watch for just an off the beaten path kind of movie, because I think something that's sad about, you know, the wide access we have to movies is often folks don't want to watch something that doesn't look glossy or or Hollywoodized or doesn't have uh, an actor they recognize or isn't directed by someone they know. And obviously movies that don't fit those categories are coming out every year. But sometimes you just got to, you know, maybe you have to force yourself to watch it unless you're someone who just really loves that kind of thing, loves discovering something, going off the beaten path to find something and champion it. And a movie like Once now has the esteem that it does because of people who went off the beaten path and championed it. Critics at Sundance or people seeking it out once they started hearing the word of mouth. And now it's available for us to watch uh, because it's such a big success. And it, it, it was definitely a good opportunity to get to watch something shot on cheap cameras <laughs> and force myself to still pay attention to what was going on in the movie, what was working and what didn't, because it has just as much merit as any other movie to be considered. And it was good to remind myself to put down the prejudices when it comes to picking what I watch and check out a, a true indie, even if I was already familiar with the source material because I'd seen the stage play. Any final thoughts on it? I do think that some of the story parts of Once drag a little. I And there there are scenes that almost feel like, I guess, non-sequiturs or just a little detached from the narrative, which what narrative is there? This movie is <laughs> very trim. It's a little over 80 minutes. So there's not much they could have cut out. But for me, it was more so highs and lows highs with the music lows with some of the the narrative but just keep them singing the whole time yeah just keep them singing the whole time there i mean there are some great scenes another another scene that i love that comes near the end of the movie features guy and his father sitting down listening to the finished product and his dad's reaction just again put a big smile on my face or when 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 girl gets the gift that's in the truck yes Oh my goodness. The ending that... of this movie is just banger after banger <laughs> in terms of hitting you right right in the emotions. HBO Max also for once, correct? Once available on HBO Max. Run. Featuring a little introduction from the great I watched critic, it. Alicia Malone. It's part yes. of a TCM Classic Film Festival that's happening on HBO Max right now. So if you have it, check out more movies from the festival. Be sure to watch Alicia Malone's introduction. It's super cool. Turner Classic Movies, keeping keeping it real. There you go. I guess Once is a classic now. 2007. <laughs> well, I feel like people consider Parasite a classic. True. Parasite would be instant classic category. But we don't need to hash out what makes a classic movie here now, Christian. We're probably not the most qualified people for that anyway. But you know what we're going to watch next week? A classic. Ooh. I'm looking forward to hearing about it, Christian. Before we get there, any other edward norton movies or music movies that you just want to throw out for folks who are digging these themes and want to keep going um i have a weird one for music movies i would recommend a star is born extended edition because they add 12 minutes of (laughs) extended edition yeah no they add (laughs) they add 12 minutes of lady gaga and bradley cooper just vibing which i think is what the movie needed 
Thank you for clarifying which the, uh, which version of A Star is Born you were referring to. You know, I thought we got 12 more minutes of Judy Garland, but I guess I can deal with 12 more minutes <laughs> of Brad and Lady Gaga. And there is also, oh, yeah. I'm, well, I'm obviously talking about 2018. It's my favorite movie from 2018. Is it? I think so. Now, the, it's a good one. Uh, in terms of Edward Norton movies, I mean, Birdman. It's a little film out there. <laughs> is it streaming anywhere? <laughs> I don't think Birdman has ever streamed. I've checked too many times <laughs> over the years. Uh, for me, one I wanted to throw out is a movie that I watched to possibly recommend on this show. Ultimately went a different direction with Keeping the Faith, but Primal Fear, which I mentioned was Norton's film debut, resulted in an Oscar nomination in his debut performance. Primal Fear is a legal thriller, and if that is your jam, I think you will really enjoy it. There are some elements that haven't aged well, specifically in the area of mental health, but it's another movie with a famous twist, thinking of Unreliable Narrators Month, uh, a famous twist that sort of makes it easier to deal with. So also on HBO Max if you're looking for more Edward Norton in your life. So that marks our streaming recommendations for this month. Altogether, a good episode, in my opinion. I liked all of these movies. Christian didn't love Keeping the Faith so much, but that's on him, not on me. So Christian, I got to do Magic May, and I'll turn it to you, my friend, to curate June for us. So why don't you tell the listeners what blend of the month is coming up and what that first movie will be? There is a specific film that is influencing this month that being said we'll get to that film when we get to it we are going to enter hispanic musical month these are all music films musical films based on play films that tell hispanic stories and i'm using the term hispanic not latino for specific reasons partly because of the language the language that will be spoken and that will be introduced and presented in these songs is spanish and we're going to start off with none other than the 1961 Academy Award winner for Best Picture, West Side Story. Have you seen West Side Story before, Scott? I have recently gotten crap from people because I still haven't seen West Side Story. And I am not only a movie person, but a huge musical person. So that is something I've been ashamed of for some time. And I am very, very excited to finally watch West Side Story especially because we're getting the Steven Spielberg remake later this year, and I'd rather see the original first. I, I do not use this term lightly. I watched this film in eighth grade. Even in eighth grade, I could tell that West Side Story was a masterpiece. Anyway, that is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Perfect. So, if you are like me, you're living in the dark, and you haven't seen West Side Story, join us in watching it on Prime in anticipation of our next episode as we kick off our Hispanic Musicals Month, curated by Christian. I can honestly say Christian's already told me what's coming up, and I'm really excited for it, so this is going to be a good one, folks. Stay tuned. With that... Thank you so much if you've reached this part of the episode. We're wrapping up the show here. So again, thank you if you're still listening. Your support means the world to Christian and myself. We love watching these movies and talking about them for you. And so it means a lot that some of you are still sticking around to listen. Uh, there are a few things you can do to support the show, if you wouldn't mind. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Helps us reach new listeners there. And we love to shout out those who do leave behind a review on the show. Also, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com where we are sure to check your feedback and consider 
movies for future streaming recommendation episodes or blends of the month and as you can see that could also result in an appearance on the show as we've had former emailers braxton cody and paul gonzalez on the show paul was the person who gave us magic may as an idea so please do send us an email if you have some feedback for the show we would appreciate it you can also follow Christian and myself on social media. We're both on Letterboxd, where we are rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. And I am a bit of a Letterboxd addict, so I would really encourage you to check it out if you love this show. It's a really awesome place to connect with other movie lovers, log the things you're watching, read great reviews, or just funny reviews. I'm a fan. So check but it no out. no haters. No haters. No. Please, please don't follow Christian and insult all of his reviews. Don't do that, folks. Don't. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Cinema Drip, as well as Christian and myself. If you just search for us, you'll find us. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? No. Perfect. Always leave them wanting more. Folks, as always, he's Christian. I'm Scott, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.